the most important book about women's basketball of the year and one of the most important ever is Inaugural Ballers. Andrew Marinus, who wrote it, is here to talk all about it. Lockdown Women's Basketball starts now. You are Locked On Women's Basketball. Your daily podcast on women's basketball. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day. Well, happy Thursday to you, everybody. I am Howard Magdal, founder and editor of The Next Women's Basketball Newsroom. You can see all that we're doing over at thenexthoops.com. Subscribe for $9 a month or $72 a year. And of course, you can subscribe to the podcast that we do, Locked on Women's Basketball, every weekday, plus Saturdays on the WNBA Draft. Make sure you are subscribing and making us your first listen anywhere you get podcasts. And a big part of what we've done in 2022, as many of you know, is writing the stories of the WBL. And in a lot of ways, the WBL was the natural outgrowth of one of the most, if not the most important women's basketball team in the history of this country and the history of women's basketball. And that is the 1976 USA basketball team. So Andrew Marinus has written a book, Inaugural Ballers, all about it. I cannot recommend this book highly enough. We pushed back our interview this morning so that I could finish the book because it was spellbinding. It reads like fiction. It is absolutely true. Andrew, thank you for being with us. A place I just want to start is just where did you first hear about this team and pique your interest where you're saying, my goodness, you know, this is something that ought to be a book project in the way you know, Glenn Burke was, and, and, and right. that's a wonderful book as well. Oh, thank you, Howard. And thanks for all the kind things you've said about the book. It means a lot to me coming um, from you, someone who knows uh, so much about the history of women's basketball. Um, so the literal answer to this question, uh, I was standing in the room just yesterday where the idea first came to me uh, a few years ago. Um, so I, I, I've written other books about sports and history and social issues and have traveled around the country uh, talking about those books many times at middle schools and high schools. You know, my books are written for teenagers and adults. And one of my previous books was on the first U.S. men's Olympic basketball team, Mm -hmm. which played at the 1936 Olympics in Nazi Germany. And half of the players on that team came from uh, a small town called McPherson, Kansas. And so I was in Kansas at a middle school in DeSoto, Kansas, talking about that book. And a young lady, uh, eighth grader, um, raised her hand and said, well, you're here to tell us about the first men's Olympic basketball team. What was the first U.S. women's Olympic basketball team? And it was a great, simple question um, from that student. And all I knew at the time was that they had played at the 1976 Olympics um, and really didn't know who the coach was or who the players were or any of the backstory of the team. But when she asked that question, Uh, I realized, you know, standing on that stage at a middle school, (laughs) this needed to be the next book that I should write. And one of the things I'm interested in doing in all my books is writing about people and events that haven't really been that well covered before, you know, Um, and also that have some social element to the story that elevates it beyond just a sports book. Uh, So with this one, 
you know, I, I don't I don't think that the 76 Olympic Olympic women's team has been discussed that much. And, you know, as you said, it is one of, if not the most important teams in, in women's basketball history and has many Hall of Famers associated with the team, some of the biggest names in the history of the sport, but they really hadn't gotten their due. And, uh, you know, the story could be told in the context of the women's rights movement of the 1970s, um, specifically, but not limited to Title IX. And I, I knew if I could um, finish the book in time for it to come out in 2022, you could time that with the 50th anniversary of Title IX, but also talk about, um, you know, just uh, feminism in the 70s and, and ERA and how uh, this growth of women's basketball on the international stage occurred at the same time women were fighting for equal rights, uh, you know, across society all over the world. You know, so I was talking to my daughter about this last night and she said, you know, gee, what, what's the book about? And I said, well, it's about basketball, but it's not really. It's really a book about feminism. And I, I, I respect the hell out of that, that you have put it in that context for people to understand that this was happening within a larger movement. And in fact, I, I think it is impossible to tell the story of women's basketball, period, without telling it within the context of feminism. And you've pointed out, you know, rightly so, women's basketball has as long a history as men's basketball, that within a year of James A. Naismith inventing the game, there was a game played at Smith College. Within a month of James A. Naismith inventing the game, there were women who were playing basketball. And so when we think about sort of that gap in growth between the two, again and again, it is that push and pull. It is that every time there is that success going forward, you have the return. Can you just talk about some of the most shocking things that you found as you sort of dug into not just the early days of women's basketball, but the level of pushback that followed it? Yeah, and that was somewhat surprising. I mean, you're a better um, longtime scholar of the game than I am until I started working on this book, I thought that it maybe would be a steady progression of progress, you know, um, but that really wasn't the case. Like you said, and I write about this in the book, there were uh, women school teachers in Springfield, Massachusetts that heard this commotion in the gym where the game was invented and would spend their lunch hour watching uh, the, the men at that time play the game. They asked Naismith if they could play too. And he said, I don't see why not. And so, uh, as you mentioned, within a couple of weeks, there were women playing the game. Problem was, there were no other women in the world that had ever heard of basketball. So who are they going to play against? Um, so they ended up playing against the, the spouses and some of the women that were on campus there at Springfield. And then Cinda Berenson introduces the game. She's really the Naismith figure of women's basketball yeah. at Smith College. Um, I have an anecdote in the book about Stanford beating Cal in women's basketball and being welcomed back to campus by the students as heroes. And then the faculty bans women's basketball as that's their response to the success of women playing. Um, Margaret Wade, you know, one of the legendary figures in women's basketball, a player at Delta State in the 1930s, uh, captain of the team. The team is banned uh, while she's there. She said she cried and burned her uniform. And they don't bring back women's basketball until she's the coach, you know, uh, three to four decades later. Um, you see this happening all over the country at different levels where the game enjoys uh, tremendous success and popularity. And just as that happens, it's cut, you know, at the knees. And often this has to do with broader social issues taking place in the country at the time. So women's basketball popular around the time of the 19 teens and 1920s when women are gaining the right to vote. Right. 
then soon after that, society becomes a little bit more conservative and women's basketball is banned as being, um, you know, almost lurid in nature that you might have men watching women uh, competing on the basketball court and sweating or, you know, see a bit of ankle or something. Then in the 1940s, uh, Rosie Riveter's building an airplane. How can you tell her she can't play basketball? You know, and so basketball enjoys a resurgence, which is then cut down again in the 1950s when society becomes more uh, conservative again. And then finally, in the late 60s, women fighting for equal rights and basketball uh, again enjoys a, a resurgence of popularity. And then you see it a- appear at the 1976 Olympics in Montreal for the very first time. Um, so you do see these ebbs and flows throughout American history. It's interesting to me to think about now, you know, um, where exactly are we as a society? In some ways, it seems like we're primed for uh, women's sports um, to be more popular than ever. Certainly TV ratings are reflecting that in a lot of sports. The Olympics last year in Tokyo, um, primetime coverage was more on women's sports than men's sports for the first time in history. And yet you see women's rights being rolled back in other ways, you know, so what, what is that really going to mean um, for uh, the uh, uh, just the existence and popularity of, of women's basketball in particular going forward? It's, it's such a significant thing that, and it puts a lie to a lot of the excuses that are used to denigrate, to minimize women's basketball, that the failures are treated as reason to stop it, but the successes are treated as reasons to stop it as well when you go back through history. And that, yeah, I think in, in more cases, it's been the successes and the uh, um, insecurities of men, you know, that this is supposed to be their playground, you know, sports belongs to us. And if, if, if women are too popular and people are actually going to see their games or we might have to spend more than 1% of our budgets, which is what colleges were spending on women's sports in the early 70s before Title IX, that that's a threat uh, to men's sports. All the, the supposed- You had that great quote. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I just, you, you quote an athletic director, I think it was in 1976, bragging that he had doubled what they were spending. I think it was Kansas uh, from, you know, from just a few years before, all the way up to 2% from all up to 2%. Yeah. <laughs> right. And then there were these, um, you know, uh, portrayed as almost like chivalrous uh, ideas about protecting women from having to run up and down a full court, <laughs> you know? And so that's why the court was divided in half or even into the thirds, right. Or that you might develop breast cancer if you were hitting the chest, with a basketball, um, mm-hmm. you know, which was just utterly ridiculous. And I was just the other day with a uh, 92-year-old Millie Barnes in uh, Central Missouri, who literally wrote the book on full-court five-player women's basketball as a rules uh, committee head in the 1970s. And she said her whole life she couldn't understand why they, there were these limits placed on, on basketball where there were quarters and timeouts and plenty of breaks when she mm-hmm. was playing, you know, lacrosse and field hockey with a much larger field and divided only into halves and no timeouts and her ovaries weren't falling out, you know? So uh, these restrictions on basketball were utterly ridiculous to her. Millie seems like a particularly good example of proving that basketball cannot be harmful to your long-term health. Quite the yeah. <laughs> 92. She's still beating everybody she knows in pickleball. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, I want to talk about some of the most significant figures here. I mean, you know, people like Pat Summit, then known as Pat Head, um, you know, people like Ann Myers, now Ann Myers, Drysdale, of course. And we need to talk about the impact that they have had on what has followed. Uh, first, just want to talk to you uh, for a moment uh, about our sponsor, Bet Online. 
Uh, Bet Online is your number one source for betting this season. Um, something that's significant to us here at Lockdown Women's Basketball is you're able to go to betonline.net and not just bet on the men's game, but the women's game as well. While I am not uh, a wagerer myself, it is something well understood that women's basketball having the same opportunities uh, leads to greater revenue. And you're seeing that this year with the WNBA uh, and their partnerships as well. So make sure that you check in on all your favorite games and events, head to betonline.net or use your mobile device to learn more bet online where the game starts and where Pat summit started was as a remarkable figure Pat Head growing up in rural Tennessee and essentially having to figure out how to be this figure from nothing. There was not a roadway for her to be able to pursue this, but she seemed to find the way anyway. And again, these stories that you told were identity and these players who were coming from, and when I say nothing, I don't mean necessarily economic circumstances, although that was the case in many instances, but having no way to see what was possible and yet finding a way to get to the same place. Um, I kind of have a twofold question for you about it. One is just, you know, what do you think it is that allowed so many people to understand what was possible when that was not something visible for them to see? And then my other part was just as a writer, how hard was it to cut when there are, you know, each one of these figures on the 76 team could be, you know, a, a major motion picture in and of herself. Yeah, I know you're right about that second question for sure. So, yeah, you're right. This generation of women that were growing up in the you know late 50s through the 60s, the early 70s, really um, competed when everything in society was telling them that they shouldn't be doing this. You know, the, the messages were, as a girl, you should not sweat. Uh, you know, you should not have muscles. Uh, you should not even be a competitive person. Um, you certainly shouldn't beat a boy, you know, at recess, even in a, in a foot race or something like that, right? Um uh, their uh, sexuality was questioned, whether they happened to be uh, LGBT or not, right? Um, uh, they had, um, in some cases, even women teachers and principals saying sports is not something that girls should be doing. And so there certainly was no promise of their middle school or their high school offering um, sports for girls. There was uh, no such thing as a basketball scholarship to a, a college. Um, there was no hope of playing in the Olympics, you know, what they didn't know that there was going to be an Olympic uh, basketball competition until just a couple years before. And there was certainly no hope of playing professionally. So it makes you wonder, like, why would you devote yourself and work so hard to develop your skills in basketball when there was nothing, <laughs> you know, uh, potentially there for you to do? Um, Pat Head played with her brothers in the hayloft above their barn <laughs> and a farm in rural Tennessee. And that was just because she had three brothers and they needed a fourth, you know, so they let her play with them. And she learned to be pretty tough under the boards uh, through her whole life as a rebounder and defensive player. Um, her family, uh, she had a really tough father who in some ways was physically and emotionally abusive to his kids, but he did build that basketball uh, hoop in the barn and he moved the family across the county line so that his daughter could play basketball in high school. The, the school she was zoned for originally didn't have girls sports, but he, he wanted her to have that opportunity. And she said that she always knew that her father at least provided opportunities for her. 
And, and similar. he came to the Olympics, too. To Yeah, he uh, came to support her at the Olympics. There was a funny anecdote about that, too. Another player named Trish Roberts on the team that heard this man yelling, shoot it, Trish, shoot it, Trish. And they all called Pat, head Pat, not Trish, but at home they called her Trish. She's wondering, why is this man telling me to shoot it? I don't even know who this guy is. <laughs> um, and I imagine we'll talk about some of the other players, but they all had their own individual paths to, you know, achieving this, this excellence. Um, I think it was yeah. just. I, I, I mean, just to that point, right? It, it's it's a, a basketball hoop in a, in a barn loft, right? In Nancy Lieberman's case, it's going down to Rucker Park. I mean, these two right. figures in women's basketball have come to dominate in, in so many different ways, um, you know, did it in fundamentally different paths. But again, it was finding it wherever it was. Yeah. And I think that that kind of gets to the heart of the book is that, um, life should be about creating the opportunities that matter to you, you know, and in so many ways, uh, women were told that they were restricted in their opportunities or restricted in their dreams or what they wanted to be in life. And here are some examples of women who maybe in some cases considered themselves feminists, but in other cases didn't at all, but were just doing what they loved, you know, but they were, uh, you know, breaking these barriers and proving that they could, um, you know, pursue their interests and become great at it. And they did. And they, they, they reached the world stage and, and set the, um, the path for such great success in women's basketball to come. You know, at that point, we were heavy underdogs going into the 76 Olympics. Had only come in eighth place at the Women's World Championships the year before. There was a newspaper reporter who said the best thing you can say about the American women is they're not the worst team in the world, maybe the second or third worst team. Um, you think about it now, we win the gold medal every time. It would be a, a huge di uh, disappointment to lose a single game along the way to the gold medal. But somebody had to be there first uh, to pave the way. And it was these, you know, what I called inaugural ballers of 76 that did that. It is shocking, really, to think about just in light of the dominance. I mean, you talked about it would be a disappointment. It would have been a shock to see, for instance, just recently at the World Cup uh, and the team that Cheryl Reeve uh, coached to a gold medal if the United States had not won that championship. But uh, the amount uh, of progress that took place, even when you think about from, say, 73 to 76, from, you know, the Pan Am Games up right through to, uh, you know, meddling in Montreal in 1976 was so much of the work. And, and Billy Moore was yes. the one who did so much of this, you know, talking about the need to have people in shape, talking about, I, I mean, really what she did, what I think is so significant, um, and, and I'm, I'm sure this is um, a critical part to the way you view it as well, is just that she didn't just push back against the team not being in the kind of shape they needed to be to ultimately run and gun and do what they need to do in 76, but she's pushing back against the very stereotypes of that time, you know, in many ways, the things that people were most afraid of when it came to women in sports at that time. Right. The idea of, of running for an hour <laughs> until you're the, all the whole team is throwing up on the sidelines. And she, right. she said they needed to learn how to push through pain and they weren't going to beat the Soviets, uh, by through their height right there the soviets had a seven foot two center mm -hmm. so she felt like the only way to compete with them at all was to be uh, you know in great shape and to be able to run she still really i don't think knew that or thought they had a chance to actually beat the soviets but to even just compete and the thing that i thought was interesting about billy moore 
in an interviewing for her for the book is sometimes you wonder with people who are involved in a historic moment recognize it at the time you know or only are able to see the history being made many years later you know, in retrospect but she understood it at the time and in the locker room before the silver medal game she gathered her players around and said that you know if they were to win this game that it was going to be significant and it would change uh, women's sports and women's basketball in the united states for the next 25 years mm-hmm. you know and she chose to put that pressure on her players heading into the game and she was right you know if you look at the um implementation of title nine which had been you know signed in 72 but what really wasn't implemented until the years following those olympics and the example that they set mm-hmm. at the 76 olympics the, the rates of participation in girls basketball and women's basketball and the growth of wbl right and the growth of the U- team usa and the eventual wnba the players who would be the first wnba stars it was all an outgrowth of this 76 olympic team and even beyond basketball you know there wasn't women's soccer in the Olympics at that time. There wasn't a women's soccer uh, World Cup at that time. So this really was the first U.S. team sport that had a chance to capture the attention of the country and show what women could do in this type of uh, team environment. And it really paved the way even beyond basketball. I, I love the way you take us inside those rooms, you know, that intro where we're in that locker room ahead of the silver medal game. But what I, I find fascinating, too, is uh, – Billy Moore basically nailed the timeline as well. You can go 25 years from Title IX, and there is the first game in the WNBA. You know, I I mean, it it really was the way in which this happened. Um, But it did take a very long time, even beyond that breakthrough. And we've, you know, spoken at length uh, about the WBL, written a lot of stories about it, and obviously – you know, many more to come, but there were so many of these stars out of the 76, out of the 76 Olympics. You, you had a moment where you talked about uh, an, an interview with the great Ann Myers Drysdale, who's been on our show and um, is someone who I'm lucky enough to consider a friend. And Annie talked about the fact that her older sister was capable of doing all these things, but was born too soon. And right. Annie was born right on time. And of course, you know, that... You know, that's so important the way you tell that story in the book, because in my mind, I've always thought of Annie as, God damn, like if Annie had come along 25 years later, she would have been one of the most uh, famous people in America with the type of stardom, the type of way that she played. And so that balance, when, yes. when you talk, and you talk to so many of these players, so many of these people, and it's so important to tell these stories, of course, because the people who did this, the original people, so much of the time are, are still with us, but that is fleeting. And so getting this down is so important while everyone is around to tell it. How did you see that balance yourself? And did that change in the midst of having those conversations with so many of the players between how far they came and Mm -hmm. the fact that they were kind of ahead of being able to enjoy the stardom of today. And and you had, you had that visual right at the very end of the book, which is what I'm thinking of first, but just take me through if you could. Okay. Yeah. No, I think that's a really good point. And, and also I think that's sort of the theme this year of the 50th anniversary of title nine, that there's been a lot of success to celebrate, but there's still unfinished business, you know, and one thing that came through crystal clear in talking to the women on this team and the coaches um, is that every generation has its struggle. Every generation has um, its responsibility to the women uh, that will come after them, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, Ann Myers is a great student of the game also, and she knew all about the AAU teams and the AAU stars that had been in generations before her. 
um, there were women that played on this team that um, realized that just by stepping on the court, that that was a significant moment in history, but that they hoped that there would be greater opportunities for women to come in the future. I think if anybody has seen the Queen of Basketball documentary on Lucy Harris, the thing that I take away most from that is just the poignancy of her not having any opportunities after her um, college and Olympic career was over um, compared to the greatest men's players in the country at that same time, you know, who had a chance in the NBA and with, with um, sponsorships and endorsements and all that. And Gail Marquis was the player from Queens College in New York City uh, who really had the most uh, interesting uh, perspective on this, I think. She's, towards the end of the book, I'm talking about how, um, you know, this earlier comment that I made about every generation passing the baton to the next. And women today having opportunities like scholarships and a professional basketball league and athletic gear. You know, uh, Nancy Lieberman said she went to shop for some Chuck Taylors and the, the salesman said, you know, basketball shoes aren't for girls, you know. So, you know, everything has changed in that regard. And Gail said that initially she she felt, if she was honest, a little bit of resentment about it. You know, did this new generation really understand what they had compared to the women that came before them? And maybe they didn't. She was concerned, you know, but she said the more she thought about it, um, the more she kind of matured or uh, progressed on that issue. And she was proud to play the role with what she had at the time. Um, and then to pass the baton to the next generation. And she said that these days when she um, is out driving in her car and she happens to pass a, a basketball court or a softball field and there's young girls outside playing sports, she wants to pull the car over and just get out and look and recognize the fact that she played a role in paving the way for those girls to be out there enjoying themselves and pursuing their dream in sports. And she said that she wears her silver medal or was a like necklace uh, around her neck almost every day. And that she thinks that those girls out there now, whether they know it or not, that that piece of that medal belongs to them too. And so she recognizes that what she and her teammates accomplished in 76 wasn't just for them, but was really making a statement and, and making it possible uh, for girls that hadn't even been born yet uh, in the future. And I think that's a really poetic way to look at it. You know, and when I talk to uh, young people now, challenge for them is, you know, to take what they have and how are they going to make things better uh, for next generations after them. And I think, you know, we've seen these last few years that just because something is a law doesn't mean it's going to be a law forever or that it will be enforced. And so if you think about Title IX, it's important to understand the history of where we were before it and to understand uh, what it protects, but also to understand what, you know, is still unfinished out there and how it can be strengthened. Implementation is everything in the law. Uh, before you even get into the issues of, I mean, you, you said this earlier in the interview of, you know, not necessarily knowing where we are. And, and you did an excellent job uh, near the end of the book. Although I, just a brief aside, I love the way in which you tied in the book to the broader culture, these moments, um, you know, the fact that a uh, niece of Oscar Peterson was playing for the Canadian national team, the, you know, the <laughs> fact that, uh, that Dr. Dr. Fog Allen treated Billy Moore, you know, all these ways in which the world's uh, writ large of basketball on the men's side connected to women's basketball and just the broader culture, you know, was a, should have always been part of the broader culture and the way in which it was consumed. And, and I say that just because that's been as much as there has been growth in the WNBA over the last half 
a dozen years, I would say, in particular, what we've noticed again and again is you see women's basketball in the larger culture. And so that is a deliberate um, excision that took place for so many years that we're seeing finally being rectified. However, here we are in 2022, and I know that um, you share my concerns about uh, the direction of the country, the direction of the world in general. And here we are at this moment that I don't think it can be argued is the peak for women's basketball that we have seen. So it's sort of a two-parter for you on this one. One is, how worried are you, given what we know of history, given what we know what has happened before, that there will be a backlash, that this progress will be fleeting? And part two, what is the biggest way in which to guard against that happening this time. Yeah. Well, the second part I would say is probably voting, right? Uh, that seems to me to be the solution to a lot of things, but not just voting, but ensuring that all votes are, are people are able to vote. You know, there's so many restrictions uh, that yes. are obviously um, so politically motivated right now to keep people from voting. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, I would say that I'm concerned in some ways that uh, this moment could be fleeting. I guess the thing that gives me hope is the incredible strength and political power that women's, women athletes have shown, you know, across the board. Uh, when you think about the Senate race in uh, Georgia that was turned by women's basketball players, and you think about the work that uh, women's soccer players have done on pay equity and, and various abuses that were taking place within their sport, I think that women athletes have a voice and a platform that is powerful and is being listened to. Um, And so that gives me uh, some degree of hope. Uh, I would say that the rollback of Roe v. Wade probably will have a pretty big impact on athletics that we haven't really talked about too much. You know, you you could look at these last 50 years since Title IX was passed. It's the same 50 years that Roe v. Wade was in place. And so, you know, what what impact is that going to have on the ability of women uh, to compete? Certainly a much bigger issue than the, what I would call the fake issue of concern over transgender athletes competing and taking away opportunities uh, from women. Don't see that as a real issue, more of just a political wedge issue. Um, It's simply a a, a design to divide. Again, you know, back to the easiest way to be able to tell it is a pretend issue is that people who in no other way have supported or care about women's sports are suddenly, uh, you know, I guess the modern phrase is concern trolling over this. Right, right. Yeah, exactly, Howard. And then the thing I've been saying when I've been speaking at, at colleges, yeah. and this kind of relates to your question, but one thing I think people need to do is just show up. You know, it, it's really disappointing to go to a women's college basketball game outside of certain places where they're selling out, but and see such a small crowd, you know, compared to who's showing up for the men's game, you know. Yeah. Um, and so even among people that say they support women's rights and women's issues, you know, do they do they are you are you considering sports as part of a way to be involved, you know, and to get out there and support these women, not just in basketball, but in, in all sports. And throughout history, it's been proven if you give women's sports a chance, like you'll love it, you know, and you're seeing that in TV ratings right now, I think. Right. Or the WNBA ratings, the highest ever. Not just the, WNBA. I did a show on this last week. The. The World Cup final for women's basketball last week was on at two in the morning Eastern time, and it drew 446,000 viewers. I mean, it's just this crazy thing that, you know, 
the, in some ways succeed, succeeding despite barriers placed directly in front of it, you know, which is absolutely women's college softball world series. I think had higher ratings than the men's baseball college world series. Um, but and I guess beyond just showing up or, or watching is to lend some visible support to women who are using their platform to speak mm-hmm. out. It's tough to be mm-hmm. using the platform for social good right now. Like you said, with all the trolls that are out there, um, mm-hmm. And sometimes people sit back and ad- admire what they're doing, but they don't actually uh, show their support in more helpful ways too. you know, yeah. so especially at a, maybe a high school or a college level, if there's a woman who is succeeding in sports, but using that platform to help other people or to advance issues, let them know that you've got their back. I, I think that's more important than ever. It's, I cannot agree enough. And, and again, it is the same struggle, but the difference is it's important to knock on doors and be active politically in this way. Uh, but it's tiring and it's hard, right? This is right. such a win-win. You go and you support the broader women's movement and you get to watch women's basketball while you do it. I mean, what, what's what's not to love about that? Right, exactly. <laughs> I, I could not agree with you more. Well, listen, I, I, Andrew, I could talk to you all day, but I'm just going to wrap things up here by just reminding people, inaugural ballers, go get it wherever you can. Follow Andrew on all fronts, um, I, I 100% endorse every tweet you've ever put out there. And, <laughs> Thanks, Howard. Uh, Likewise. And your voice is out there talking about this. And uh, again, to our listeners, thank you so much for making us your first listen every day. Um, now for your second listen, go check out the Ultimate uh, Pro Basketball Preview 2022 NBA side. NBA is um, a league where men play professional basketball, uh, the little brother league to the WNBA. And obviously, you know, um, good luck to them. We have uh, a great team over at the Lockdown Podcast Network who is contributing along with Odyssey, combining into one ultimate NBA preview. So search for Ultimate Pro NBA Preview 2022 on your Odyssey app, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. And sure, once as long as there's no women's basketball on the agenda, yeah, go go ahead and take in an NBA game. I've got nothing against that as well. So, Andrew Marinus, such a pleasure. Um, can't wait to have you back on the show. And, and, and truly, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for writing this book and helping to tell these stories. I Just as a point of personal privilege, uh, a thing that haunts me when I go to bed at night is thinking that even as we're trying to tell every story today, every story of the players coming up tomorrow, that w- we have to backfill too. And we have to make sure that we're taking great pains to tell these stories properly. And so seeing it happen and seeing it happen in such a careful way and such a well-considered way means the world to me. And I know to so many people. So really, thank you, Andrew, for what you've done. Oh, that's incredibly kind, Howard. I-, I can't tell you how much that means. Thank you so much. And, and to our listeners, make sure you listen tomorrow. The great Natalie Heverin will be with you. Missy Heydrich on Monday with our College Basketball Mondays. And every single weekday, not to mention Saturday's two WNBA draft. I am Howard Magdal, founder and editor of The Next, wishing you all a wonderful Thursday. You are locked on women's basketball. Your daily podcast on women's basketball. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day.